Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you seen Defive Bloods yet? Spike Lee movie? I mean, you should. It's one of the best of the year. It follows the story of four black veterans of the Vietnam War who returned to Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City. Officially, they are looking for the remains of their fallen squad leader. Unofficially, well, unofficially, somewhere in the jungle, there's a bunch of gold they left behind, and they want to find it. The cast of The Five Bloods is really something. There's Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. from The Wire, Jonathan Majors from The Last Black Man in San Francisco and Lovecraft Country, the late Chadwick Boseman. But the star is probably Delroy Lindo. He plays Paul. Paul returns to Vietnam a changed man, a widower whose son is tagging along out of fear for what might happen to his dad, a veteran who struggled to cope with the trauma of war, and on his head... He's a Make America Great Again hat. Returning to the land which caused all of them so much pain opens old wounds and reignites unresolved heartache. Delroy Lindo loses himself in the role. It's breathtaking. Conducting our interview with Delroy Lindo is Ray Suarez, friend of the show, public radio veteran, one of the best in the game. Before we get into his conversation with Delroy Lindo, let's hear a clip from the film. In this scene, the war veterans have a meeting with a French businessman who's agreed to help Paul and his friends smuggle the gold out of Vietnam once they retrieve it. At this point in the conversation, though, the deal runs into a hitch. The asking price has gone up, and Paul, in particular, feels disrespected. Gentlemen, I believe our business is finished. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You sit down, please. Just give us that respect. Where were Frenches in World War II? Hitler had y'all by the snails. The damn U.S. of A. Saved your asses. If it wasn't for good old Uncle Sam, all yous, y'all be speaking to Deutsche, eating bratwurst, schnitzels, and sauerkraut instead of croissants, snails, and escargot. Come on, blood. Let it go. No, man. Just let it go. No, no, that. I ain't done. This can't tell me My daddy, God rest his soul, landed in Normandy and killed beaucoup goose-stepping Nazis. Let me tell you something. Them Nazis weren't no punks neither. Not like you. Delroy Lindo, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, every line of work has a tempo. You finish this, you start that. Uh, we're in the award season for The Five Bloods and other 2020 movies. But that's been in the can a long time. Is there downtime after a project, some time for you to catch your breath? How long before you move on to the next thing? So what's happened since we filmed, since we wrapped Five Bloods in, um, in 2019 is that um, I went back to do uh, work on a television show that I was working on. Then COVID hit, so everything shut down. Then in the midst of COVID, the film was released. So I started doing press 
Fortified Bloods and have been doing press essentially for the last six months. And then I went last fall, the fall of 2020, to do a film in New Mexico. During the time that I was doing the film, I was also doing press for Five Bloods. And I wrapped the film right before Christmas. I have been doing press for the film ongoing. And then I went to finish some work on the television show that I was doing. And I recently wrapped that. But I have been doing press for the film in support of the film Five Bloods throughout the whole period, throughout the whole process. Sure, sure. Um, also, the movie, The Five Bloods, opened mid-pandemic. So there aren't um, searchlights and a marquee and yeah. limos and an opening and yeah. theaters full of people watching the movie. Yeah. It, it changes the whole experience as it's changing the business. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different paradigm. But, you know, Spike made a really um, made an interesting point. He said, because as you probably know at this point, we were slated to go to Cannes, not in competition, but Spike was going to be a judge um, and the film was going to premiere at Cannes. Um, couldn't do that. And it couldn't have any, any theatrical release at all. But what Spike said was to me was, despite all of that, more people would be seeing the film because it was streaming, because it was being released via Netflix. More people would be seeing the film than otherwise might have. So that was a plus. Well, let's talk more about the film. You're about the same age as your character Paul would be, almost right on the money. Uh, given the age that people were when they went to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, but the similarities, I would argue, might end there. Did, so this is a disappointed, bitter man in a lot of ways. Um, is it someone you had to get to know? You know, I, I'm always, I always feel compelled to defend Paul. Um, people who use the term, you know, he's full of rage, which I feel compelled to defend. You just use the word bitter. And right when you use the word bitter, the word I would use is crushed. Paul has been crushed by life. Paul has been crushed by the circumstances in his life that he is trying to make sense of. He's about the business of not only coming to terms with the various things in his life that have crushed him, that have knocked him around, that have beat him up, but more to the point is very much about the business of negotiating those things and finding answers for and ultimately seeking redemption for. So as you use the word bitter, which is entirely your right to, 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 if that's how you see it, from, from my point of view, being inside of Paul, immediately when you use the word bitter, I, the, the word that came to my mind was crushed by life, crushed by circumstances. And that is what, what Paul is in the process of negotiating through. Well, I, I don't mean bitter as a pejorative. I think he's, he's earned every bit right. of his, 
his heartbreak, and life has done him in a way that's given him every reason to to be the man who comes back to Vietnam with his old buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, the The exposition at the top of the movie is fascinating because we have to quickly get a sense of who these guys are before we go into the jungle, and we get a. But here's 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 what's interesting about that exposition. Talk about an adjustment. You know, we, you, as a contemporary audience, I had no idea that Spike was starting the film with that particular footage, right? So one is actively making an, an adjustment to the narrative before we get into the meat of these men and their particular journey. Um, but that is a, a kind of a, a searing adjustment that the audience is being asked to make in terms of the, the contemporary relevance of this story as it relates to America, as it relates to the world, and as it relates specifically to these men and their particular journey. Absolutely. One place that the journey from the 70s to the teens takes your character, Paul, is to make him an American conservative. Mm-hmm. Straight-backed, binary, good and evil, a mm-hmm. pretty um, a pretty rigid guy, I think it's fair to say. Then he slaps a MAGA hat on his head, and his, his bloods, his friends from uh, back in the war days, recoil, they're shocked to see it. One out of 12 black men in America voted for Donald Trump, and your character Paul mm-hmm. was one of them. So you know what is it's it's a beautiful thing that you raise those two elements. It's it's a beautiful thing because it gives me the opportunity to address a couple of aspects of the work working process that became so rich and so valuable for the journey of making this work. First, firstly, is firstly a real word? Is that a real word? Or yeah, is it? yeah. Okay, so firstly, <laughs> firstly, <laughs> I would say that I was compelled to deconstruct what in the world would cause this man to cast that vote in 2016 because it is antithetical to any vote that I would cast. So, but what I was compelled to do was to understand, attempt to understand, empathize with Paul and discover and create for myself the circumstances that would have led to casting that vote. And in that process, I was connected with the loss that Paul has suffered. I connected with um, the extent to which he was reviled and spat on coming back to America after having volunteered for three, volunteered, was not drafted, volunteered for three tours and being so profoundly, you know, repudiated for that gesture of love toward the country. So in that juxtaposing the extent to which many vets were reviled 
and called baby killers and spat on, all of those things, which happened um, to one of my cousins in particular. They both had negative experiences coming back to America, but one more so than the other. But but that was something I could very, very um, clearly, I knew that to be true. true. That was axiomatic to many, many, the experiences of many vets. So I had that. That was a chunk of data, as I've come to call it, that I could delve into. Then there was the fact that the script, what the script gives me is that I lost my wife in childbirth. Loss, tragedy. That loss and tragedy has resulted in an estrangement from my son. Loss. I'm a parent. I'm a parent of a son. I can't imagine being estranged from my son. And I, I, can, I can only imagine the depth of the pain and the hurt that Paul is suffering as a result of losing his wife in childbirth and then the conflicted feelings toward my son that results in this estrangement. So there's loss and there's loss and there's loss and there's, there's loss on top of loss and on top of loss. That, for me, all stemming from the work that I was compelled to do to try to understand how in the world this man became not only um, not only cast that vote in 2016, but then has that totem, that hat. All of these things are my attempts to not only make sense of my world, but I understood Paul needs a win. That's the term I've taken to, to using. I need a win in my life, man. And I see all these other winners. I see all the immigrants coming and getting ahead of me in terms of their experiences, in terms of what I, what I see that they are uh, getting as rewards from, from coming to America, as a result of coming to America. All these things that I have not gotten. I need a win. God dog it. And so here then comes this individual who says, I can make you a winner. I can do all these things that are going to make you a winner. And I need to believe that. Right? So that is that formed the basis for or one of the bases for the, the Trumpian aspect of, of who Paul is. And the what you called rigidness, which again I, I'm compelled to defend, but it's okay. You you no, you have a right to use that word. You 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 call it a rigidness, this straight back what you call this straight back rigidity, I call a strong sense of what I deserve, God dog it. And how in the world does it happen that these other people come from outside of the country and get things that I haven't gotten? How dare they? How dare they? This is my birthright, God dog it. And if we went on the radio, I'd be using other language right now. But <laughs> you get the point. Um, I get the point. Now, what's interesting when you reference my um, compadres, my bloods, my brethren, reviling me. I don't remember the word you used. But here's what's interesting about their reaction, their response to 
my politics, it does not cause them to love me any less in the final analysis, which for me spoke to and speaks to the bond that these men share, the bond that the, the, the experience of having been in Vietnam together, the bond that that gave birth to. And that was also a brilliant clue to my relationship with these men, to our relationship together. And so I appreciate that you raise those points because it now gives me the opportunity to talk about how those elements became positives on the journey of the Five Bloods. We'll finish up with Delroy Lindo after a break. Coming up, Delroy was born in London, spent part of his life in Canada, and only came to the U.S. in his late teen years. We'll ask him what that's like. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. On NPR's Consider This podcast, we don't just help you keep up with the news, we help you make sense of what's happening. Like what the case about George Floyd's killing means for the ongoing fight for racial justice, or how to best navigate a pandemic that's changed life for all of us. All of that in 15 minutes every weekday. Listen now to Consider This from NPR. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right, it's called Who Shot Ya, a movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Wadiway, host of the show and certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duralde, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film industry. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Delroy Lindo. Lindo is a veteran actor. He's been in movies like Malcolm X, Get Shorty, and The Cider House Rules. These days, he's starring on the TV show The Good Fight, where he plays Adrian Bozeman. Delroy is also the star of the recent Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods, in which he gives a brilliant performance as the Vietnam War veteran Paul. He's been nominated for a bunch of Best Actor awards for the role. If you've seen it, you know why. Anyway, for our show, he is being interviewed by our pal, journalist and host Ray Suarez. Let's get back into it. You moved to the United States as a teenager, just as the war was reaching its crescendo, the worst years of it. So you were here and immersed in it, but it was at the same time somebody else's thing that you were no, I, being I have, introduced to? Or? No, I was not here. I was not here um, during the Vietnam 
years during the Vietnam War. And so um, what I've said to various of your colleagues is that my, of course, I knew about the Vietnam War. Um, you know, I was 16 years old in 1968. But my my impressions of the war and the extent to which the war had infiltrated my consciousness and my being were indeed impressionistic. Therefore, my in, in tackling this role and in negotiating this part and this journey, it involved a lot of research for me and frankly, a lot of educating of myself. I told one of your colleagues, and I've told various of your colleagues um, in this process of supporting the film, that many, many, many years ago, I had read Wallace Terry's book, Bloods. Um, it's a book, Wallace Terry um, um, edited the book, and it's a, it, it depicts, it, they are, Bloods are, Bloods contains verbatim accounts of African-American vets, their experiences uh, in Vietnam and their experiences with the military. And I had read Bloods many, many, I read Bloods when it first came out. So Me too. Yeah. So, you know, a really, really impactful book, right? Uh, and I went back and read it in preparing for this film in, in amongst all of the various other things that I did in preparing. But to your point of, of, of what the Vietnam War meant to me and how I revisited, how I reconnected with, with that in a context of doing this film, it involved a great deal of uh, research for myself to acclimate myself, orientate myself to the world of this film, of this particular narrative. One of the fascinating creative choices that Spike Lee makes is to not bother with the passage of time. And I didn't realize it at first. I'm watching a firefight. You're in the helicopter door laying down fire. Now, in those kinds of scenes, a young guy can look older. I mean, since photography was invented, young guys fighting wars have looked older than their years. Yeah. Then the light catches Isaiah Whitlock in the helicopter, and I notice he's got a gray goatee. <laughs> and I realize, oh, wait, they're not bothering to make these guys look like they're in their 20s. <laughs> and it took a second, and then I realized, and then in every flashback after that, no, you're just, you're just who you are now, back then. And, and that's, especially after seeing The Irishman, and um, and seeing them trying to make Robert De Niro look 40 years younger, I thought, well, maybe that's the way to go. So look, <clears throat> what you're, <clears throat> without knowing it, what you're providing me in this, in this conversation, you're providing me all these wonderful opportunities to correct you. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to... <laughs> Well, luckily, I got a big enough ego. I can handle it. I feel so superior right now. <laughs> yeah, and that's that. I'm being I'm being facetious. <clears throat> I'm being facetious. But it wasn't that Spike was not bothering. It was that he was taking the circumstances that he was presented with, which in this instance were 
We don't have the money, Mr. Lee, to give you to engage that de-aging process. That's just not in the budget. And Spike's genius, basically, rather than not bothering, he embraced it. He embraced the um, that element of the process and utilized it in support of the film. Classically, he took lemons and made lemonade. Some really good lemonade. You know, Spike has spoken to the fact that it just was not in the budget. To, to We didn't have the money to do that de-aging process, process. But what I can tell you, as I've told various of your colleagues, when I read in the script that we would be doing those flashback scenes as our current day selves, as our present day selves, I didn't miss a beat. It didn't not make sense. Therefore, it made sense, evidently. It, it, it was not jarring. Um, I didn't think, huh, how's this going to work? I just accepted it. Then, when we were filming the scenes, it made even more sense that we were interacting with Norm, played by Chadwick Boseman, as our present-day selves. Because after all, narratively, we were revisiting the past and revisiting our recollection of Norm as our present-day selves. And so it made even more sense that that de-aging had not been um, used. Absolutely. Because once you realize it, you get it. Mm-hmm. And it works. Yeah. And in fact, there is a still at the end of the movie where... You are either altered mm-hmm. in post or mm-hmm. made up on say on scene, however it happened, mm-hmm. an attempt to make the five of you mm-hmm. look like young men. And when I saw that, I said, oh, thank God they didn't do it. Because <laughs> that, I, I said, oh, after we just watched this whole wonderful story, I'm glad they didn't do it when I saw the yeah. effect at the end. Yeah, and I know the I, I'm I, I know exactly the image that you're that you're referring to. Yeah, it, it just made all the sense in the world from the standpoint that we were revisiting and trying to make sense of our memories vis-a-vis Storm and Norm, played by Chadwick Boseman, and having then in real time to negotiate for ourselves what those memories mean and meant. And it just made the, the, the unfolding of the story that much sharper, I believe. Well, one thing that for me cranked up the poignancy of that idea is that we now know that Chadwick Boseman, not only does his character, Norman, never get to be an old man, but Chadwick himself has been robbed of the opportunity to ever be an old man. He never has to cover the passage of time visually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you and your co-stars know he was sick when Defy Bloods was being shot? Clueless. We had no clue whatsoever. I don't think any of us did. In fact, I'm almost positive none of us knew that he was sick. 
which is a testament to who he was as an individual, as a, as a, as a, as a human being, uh, his professionalism, his commitment to his craft, and his commitment to the telling of this particular story. None of us had a clue. Have you seen the movie since its release? And yes. since Chadwick died? Um, I have not seen it since Chadwick passed. I will see it again, obviously, but I have not seen it since Chadwick passed. Because I would imagine that would be hard to watch, given especially what the story is about. Sure. Of someone having their life taken too young. But you know what? I, I don't know what my experience will be watching Chadwick when I do see the film again. But what, what it accentuates for me is the importance of celebrating. I'm going to celebrate Chad. I'm going to celebrate this man. Not only, however I can, not only in terms of his contribution to this film in particular, but his talent in general. I'm going to be about the business of celebrating him. And that is not because I'm sticking my head in the sand against reality, but it's my way of acknowledging, continuing to not to acknowledge the depth of the talent and to pay homage to that talent and to continue to pay homage to not only his contribution to the film, but to the narrative in general for all of that, for all of us and for all of our sakes and for my own sake. I'll tell you a story really quickly. Um, after Chadwick passed, I was invited to um, attend the ceremony that they were having for him. And I received the notice, I got, I got an email inviting me to the ceremony they were going to have to celebrate Chadwick. Uh, I received the email when I was sitting on a plane about to go to New Mexico to do this film that I did. So I could not go. But in taking a half step back and recognizing, acknowledging that Chad and I only spent, you know, a relatively limited time together working on the film and our families had dinner together a few days before he left um, Thailand. I've spoken a lot about how gracious Chadwick was toward my son, my then 17-year-old son, and how appreciative I was of that. And we, I think, had, had exchanged a couple of texts subsequent to the film being released. But it really touched me very deeply that despite the fact that we had a relatively small amount of time together, he and his family felt so moved to invite me to this ceremony. And I found out after the fact that what it was was a scattering of his ashes. So the fact that whatever impression my coming together with him made on him and his family resulted in, had a depth, had enough depth that they would invite me to the scattering of his ashes means, uh means the world to me and um i will uh, i will celebrate this man <clears throat> and just celebrate the the relationship that was nascent no question 
but was very, very significant at the same time. The Five Bloods is uh, your fourth Spike Lee joint, but it's been a long time since the last one. Mm-hmm. Did you fall right into each other's uh, slipstream, comfortably get right back into your old groove again? We did. Yep, we sure did. Uh, and I think that's a testament to a, a number of things. It's a testament to the rich nature of the material, the confidence that he placed in me by picking up the phone and calling me and saying, I want you to come and do this. And the fact that we have enough of a history, I'm really hesitant to say this, but we have enough of a history that time does not diminish that connection. Because if you think about it, it's structured and it's focused. It's focused on work. And as such, because it is focused on work, Spike has a position, a relationship to the work. I have a relationship to the work. He has a relationship to me. I have a sense of what he wants. We have very specific focuses, as we have had in the three films that we did in the early, mid-1990s. And the results of those collaborations have been such that apparently, evidently, 25 years did not diminish the strength of that connection. That's great to hear. I mean, I went to high school with Spike Lee. Oh, wow. And, um, I'll check you out. Wow. And I'll tell you, uh, when I see him uh-huh. interviewed on television, uh, he is in some ways still that guy that he was at John Dewey High School in the 1970s. So, wow. So um, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm interested to hear you say that. Um, as a as a longtime uh, observer of your work and a fan, uh, I mean, I even saw you in Master Harold and the Boys. We, we, so unbeknownst to you, we go back a long way. Mm-hmm. I was looking forward to hearing you speak because I've never heard you say a word out of character. I've never seen you speak in a context other than performance. And I'll tell you why. You were mm-hmm. born in London, West Im- Indian immigrant mm-hmm. family moved to Canada as Mm -hmm. a young teenager, to the U.S. Mm -hmm. as an older uh, Mm -hmm. young adult. And I was thinking, what does a guy with those stamps in his passport end up sounding like? Uh, When when you finally land, like, what do you end up talking like? Uh, When you're tired or when you're relaxing or maybe when you've had a few drinks, do other places Uh come out in your speech? And an actor's body is his instrument? An actor's voice is his instrument, and your natural speech is part of your instrument. Can you turn it on and off? Can you uh, become who you were as a a younger man uh, when you need to? Yeah. So could I sound like I'm from South London or Southeast London? Yes. Um, Can I sound like a Jamaican? Yes. And you're absolutely right. That's, That's part of my toolbox. They're really, really valuable parts of my toolbox. I've never been called, uh, well, no, that's not the right word. I, I've never gotten a job. I've never, as an actor, I've never had to play somebody from Southeast London. But were I to get a call to do that and the material, it was something I wanted to do that the director or whomever wanted me to do, that would not be a problem. 
And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. What's brilliantly ironic about that is that, you know, my experiences as a young kid in London were not the best, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you put that very diplomatically. (laughs) (laughs) But now, as an adult, to have that in my toolbox and potentially be able to utilize that in service of my work is extraordinary. That's God, man. That's God. That is, um, you know, it is said, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. And I have been gifted this journey of life and gifted this journey of work in such a way that so many of, of my neuroses, and fears, insecurities, I can tap into in service of this work that I adore doing. Not only do I adore doing the work, I've been given sufficient opportunities to do the work, which as you know, is not a given. Absolutely. And so, you know, the higher power, the universal being, God, however you wish to define that force in life, has seen fit to construct the circumstances, along with the work that I have done, but has seen fit to present me these opportunities where I could utilize all of those things in service of my work. And I would say in service of, uh, I don't know, myself as a human being, because that's that's been part of my growth as a human being. That's been part of um, my uh, the opportunities that I've had to create, yes, but also to recreate myself and have the life that I have that culminates in you saying, somebody like yourself saying, well, damn, you don't sound like you're from New Rishim. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that I don't necessarily sound like I am from Russian, but it's also a wonderful thing that I could sound <laughs> right. <laughs> that I am from Russian if and when an opportunity arose. That's pretty that's pretty it's pretty brilliant. Well, Delroy Lindo, it's it's been a, a real treat to Thank talk you. to you about these ins and outs, uh, and to talk to you about the movie to fly to five bloods i hope it has a successful coming season thank and you. i hope your name gets uh, gets thrown around a lot thank and, you and uh i hope that uh, all our careers survive this bizarre time amen. in american life amen thank you so much delroy lindo to five bloods is streaming right now on netflix it is thrilling touching entirely unique go see it That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where it is raining right now. As I look out my window, the sky is bright blue, and yet somehow it is also pouring rain down upon my house. You might even be able to hear it coming down the downspout outside of my office window. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We're at twitter.com slash bullseye. We're on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And we're on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We post all our interviews in all of those places. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 